And if you have a copy of God's Word, if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 14 this morning. We just heard a powerful story of rescue, a powerful story of getting involved in a difficult situation, a situation in which I think all of us in this room have uh, felt the temptation to say, you know something, I just need to sit back and just see how this plays out. As I've listened to Tim and Tim's story and the Pembury's involvement in what seems to be extraordinary circumstances, there is a sense of just stepping up and stepping out. But oftentimes, the challenge of stepping up and stepping out is that we don't have enough information. We're just too busy. It's none of our business. We just don't know what the first step needs to be. I feel those pressures. I, I feel that you feel those pressures. We all feel those pressures because there are opportunities that we have that God places before us to be about his rescue, to be about his intervention in the lives of family members and friends. And at times, we fail to step up and to step out. This morning, we're going to look at the story of Abram's life, and as we're tracking through his story in the book of Genesis in the fall semester here, we're coming to a place here where Abram steps up and he steps out. He, he shows heroic courage in the midst of uncertain circumstances, and Abram, like Tim, and his family didn't choose to sit on the sidelines when they were people in need. Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse 8, is where we are this morning, reading through verse 16. If you would look in your copy of God's Word, we begin with a list of kings. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboam, and the king of Balah, that is Zoar, they went out and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Ketelaramir, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goem, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariok, king of Elisar. Four Kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all of their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was also living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anar. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men born in his house, 318 of them, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them back to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of the possessions, and he brought back his kinsmen, Lot with his possessions, and the women, and all the people. So if there are millions of dollars that were given to Hollywood to produce a a biopic of our picture of Abraham and his story. Uh, you would imagine if J.J. Abrams gets his hand as the director upon the script that we have here in Genesis, that this would be a place in Genesis chapter 14 that he would slow down. 
This would be a place that he would expand. This would be a place that he would take some director's license to expand upon what is full of cinematic exploration here. I mean, you have, you have kings, you have a, a riveting plot, you have villainous and, and good kings, you have battles, you have hostages, you have late night surprise attacks, all right here in Genesis chapter 14. I don't know what happened to you Monday through Saturday, but I tell you this, uh, we, we, we got a lot to deal with this morning in this passage here, don't we? It always makes me laugh when people say, you know, the Bible is, it just seems so, I just kind of yawn my way through it. I just say, what else do you need here? Yesterday, actually, I was with some of my uh, friends, or excuse me, some of my son's friends, and they were asking me, some of them went to Dawson, and they asked me, what are you preaching on tomorrow? And I said, well, actually, there's lots. He's got a nephew, and he gets captured, and he's taken hostage, and the Abram's got 318 mercenaries, and they go in. It's a surprise attack. They get him out, and he just looked at me, and he said, you know something? I've got to pay attention tomorrow. Okay, so chapter 12, to get to chapter 14 here, we got to remind ourselves that Abram has been promised lineage, he's been promised land, and he's been promised to be a blessing to all the nations. So God has said to him, the nations that curse you, uh, I will curse. I will bless nations through you. And so we have this already and not yet. They are already in the land, but it is not yet theirs fully. There are others in the land. And so there's this tension between the land and their complete occupation of the land. And this is going to be much of the story of the Old Testament before the divided kingdom here. So to summarize the situation of these skirmishes and invasions here, to summarize it, Sodom is a part of five cities. This is the five kings that are mentioned here. They're at the south end of the Dead Sea there. And for 12 years, these kings, as Genesis chapter 14, especially verses 1 through 7, describe to us, these five kings have to pay tribute. They have to pay money and produce to the king that is named Ketelaramir. He is sort of, uh, for, for uh, cinematic reference here, he's sort of playing the Don Corleone role of the ancient Near Eastern world here. And so these five kings say to themselves, do we really have to pay tribute to this king here? So they stop. 13th year, they stop paying tribute. Well, of course, somebody's going to notice this. Of course, he's going to gather the allies. So King Ketelaramir, uh, along with the other allies, they come in from the east on the 13th year, and they want to do what? They want to squash rebellion. They want to say, this is what happens when you do not pay us tribute, when you do not give us money and produce, this is what's going to happen. So how in the world is Abram and his family involved in, in this going back and forth of these kings that are, whose names are just hard to pronounce? What does it have to do with Lot and what does it have to do with Abram? Well, you remember last chapter, Genesis chapter 13, Lot and Abram, they have too much they have too much. They have too many possessions. They have too many servants. They have too many resources that are pulling upon one another. So they have to split. They have to go in separate directions. So Abram says to what? To Lot. You look and you go left or you go right. And if you remember the way in Genesis chapter 13, Lot makes his decision. He looks in the Jordan Valley and it looks appeasing. It looks appetizing. He chooses to dwell outside of Sodom and Gomorrah based upon the visual appeasement, the visual seduction of the land that he sees there. And in Genesis chapter 13, we leave Lot and he's outside 
of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, something changes. One chapter later, Genesis chapter 13, verse 12, he's outside of the land. Genesis chapter 14, verse 12, he's in the land. He's dwelling inside of it. This is a portrait of how sin works in your life and how it works in my life. You see, there is a seductive siren song of sin that sings to your appealing to your emotions, appealing to your mind, appealing to your eyes. Satan is this master marketer. And he dresses sin up. Sin looks as if it is appealing to your physical needs. It is appealing to your emotional needs. To change the metaphor, he's this master fisherman that is always, always baiting the lure in an attractive and a seductive way. He's always trying to get your eyes, to get your heart to go to the sin that he dresses up. But it is an illusion. There is a hook under the bait. And so what we discover is, is that there's Lot outside of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Lot is dwelling inside of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's like, we are like. He, we, we ask ourselves, how close can we get to sin without facing the consequences of it? How close can we get to dwelling in Sodom without facing the consequences of Sodom? We're like four-year-olds at a campfire and we're roasting our marshmallows and we become fixated upon the fire and we wonder to ourselves in that moment, can I just touch the edge of it? But it always burns. It always burns. No matter how enticing it looks, no matter how captivating it looks, it always burns. There are always consequences. You know, in many ways, you can look at this passage and you, you can see a principle that emerges. Lot chooses his company and his company leads to his captivity. Lot's choice of company leads to his captivity. Lot chooses to dwell in a place of sin and ultimately he is going to feel the repercussions of his choice through his captivity. If you're here this morning, you need to hear this, especially maybe if you're a teenager. Let's just say you're 13 or 14 or 15. And frankly, if you're 45 or 65 or 75 or 85, you need to hear this. But oftentimes, in those moments as a teenager, you're making choices. You're making choices about your company. You're asking yourself, who am I going to be with on Friday nights? Who am I going to date or who am I not going to date? Who are going to be the closest to me. And when you, wanting to follow God, choose a company that isn't following God, that can, not always, but that can lead to your captivity. It did with Lot, and it often can, oftentimes can with you as a sophomore, or you as a seventh grader, or you as a senior. Be careful, your company, it can lead to your captivity. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, would say it this way, a very memorable way for grandparents or for parents. You've probably quoted this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Don't be misled. Bad company ruins good. I memorized it in the NIV this way. Bad company ruins good morals. In the English Standard Version, it says bad company corrupts good character. I have loved ones 
in my own life that I, I love dearly and, and close to that have, that have struggled with, with addiction. Some of that addiction has been substance abuse. And they're good people. These are not weak people. These aren't people of weak countenance. See, these are people, uh, many of which, that love God and love God dearly. And, and none of them woke up and said, you know something, today I am going to make decisions that for forever will alter my life and forever will alter the course of my family's life. None of them do that. But you know what can happen for your life and for my life? You know what can happen is, is that we make small decisions about our company that can lead to our captivity. So Abram has a captive nephew. What is he to do about it? Well, one thing that he could do is to say, you know something, God has promised to me that I'm going to be the father of this great nation. Lineage is promised to me, and I'm pretty essential to that plan. So this is a suicide mission. I know that he needs help, but ultimately I'm going to risk the 99 for the one, really? Look at the responsibility that I have. Or he could have said, you know something? He's getting what he had coming to him. He's reaping what he sowed. He's getting the consequences for the, the stupid or maybe even sinful actions and decisions that he made. And so, you know, I need to back away and just let this play out. I can't get involved in this. Or he could have said, surely somebody else would help him in the midst, but that's not what he says. In this moment, Abram wandering, Abram, father Abraham, coward in Egypt, Abram, is going to become in a moment general Abram. Look what he does. He gets 318 trained men. This is a special ops force. He throws his hat in this bloody battle between these kings here, and he tracks down these four kings. 120 miles later at Dan, he routes them. He kicks them out of the promised land. This is this military squad that takes a surprise attack, dividing the forces here. And we look at the end result of this, and he gets his nephew back. He gets the possessions back. He gets the servants back. He gets the women back. It is a rout in every way. And you can look at this passage and say, wow. I mean, this is a principle of courageous leadership. Look at the way that, that Abram in this moment divides and conquers. Look at the way that he delegates. Look at the way that he's committed to a task. And you can make it all about leadership principles and miss the whole point of the passage entirely. Because as you look at this passage, while, while it looks as if Abram is the hero of the story, there's another greater hero in the story. And in many ways, this story becomes a portrait. It becomes an illustration of our call and God's power. It becomes a portrait of human responsibility and God's sovereignty that is a through line all throughout Scripture. As you look at this passage here, Abram had a responsibility, and he acted upon that responsibility. He didn't give up on Lot. 
And there is a responsibility that you have and that I have. Maybe you're a parent here or you're a grandparent and there is a son or a daughter and they have lived in a foreign land for a long time and I'm here to encourage you, do not give up on them. Continue to knock on the door of a just God who desires their salvation, desires their restoration even more so than you do. Mom, dad, grandparent, he desires to bring them back. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to everlasting life. While the thief thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, Jesus Christ has come to give your co-worker, your neighbor, your son, your daughter, your father, your mother, life and life more abundantly. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. When they've taken residence in a foreign land and it seems as if all hope is gone from that close friend. As we look at this passage, there is an invitation in this passage to be a part of the 318 men that go after captive friends and family members. Not with swords, not with spears, but rather we rescue them with the rescuing love of a savior. We don't look away from a loved one that is taken prisoner by sin. We don't say it's none of my business. They've had enough chances. Well, the half-brother of Jesus, James, in the fifth chapter, he, he would intersect into this Old Testament story, and he would remind us of a principle when he says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Yes, we need people to heed the responsibility to go after loved ones with the word of God and with prayer because why? People all around us are drowning in sin. People all around us are are isolated from God's rich resources of his love and his shelter. They're looted and they're robbed by Satan and and he takes joy. He takes peace. He desires to steal. He desires to kill. He desires to destroy. So we go after them. We don't settle to sit on the sidelines and, and just look at them, we, we, in the words of Fanny Crosby in that wonderful hymn of decades ago, we are called to rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin and the grave, weep over the erring one, lift up the fallen, do what? Tell them of Jesus the mighty to save. And you say, well, it's complicated. David, I get what you're saying. I mean, I get the principle. I get the heart of what you're saying. But it is really complicated. It is really messy. And you know what? Of course it is. Or you say, David, if you you only knew how far my loved one has gone, if you only knew how deeply in bondage to addiction they they were, if you only knew how strong the enemy of pride was in their life or how powerful the army of unbelief is in their life, if you only knew my situation, you would understand that I am powerless to help in this situation. I've got to show tough love. I've got to back away. I can't get involved. and you say, I don't have the strength, I don't have the resources, I don't have the ability, and guess what? You are exactly right. 
You are exactly right. You don't have the ability to set a friend free. You don't have the ability to redeem a son or a daughter from the bondage of unbelief. That is the secret to this story here because neither did Abram. He shows up with 318 men facing these four armies here. He's outnumbered. He's outflanked. He is facing insurmountable odds. And then we look down to the end of the story in Genesis chapter 14, and we have this strange perspective from this priest by the name of Melchizedek that sums it up in two verses, verse 19 and verse 20 of Genesis chapter 14. Melchizedek said, blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who's done what? Who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Abram went and God gave him the victory. Human responsibility and God's sovereignty coupled together in this story. Abram was obedient and God was victorious. Both are needed in your life and in my life. We need people to share the gospel with us, but only God can break the hardness of a lost one's heart. We need people who will show us the love and the mercy of God through their actions in the workplace, in their conversations, but only God can draw that person who is blind into sight. Only God can, can save the person who was lost and bring them into the family of God. But we are called to plead for their soul in prayer. We are called to take them regularly, knocking upon the door of God for our loved ones who do not know the shelter of God's love, do not know that his mercy extends to them wherever they have been. And it frees us. This is the wonderful joy of this truth. When you understand it, not only in your head, but your heart, it frees you to share. Because it is not your responsibility nor my responsibility to be so clever in our sharing or so wise in our insight that we, through our ingenuity and our intellect, bring someone from Blindness to sight. That's not what you are called to do. We're just called in our finite, feeble ways to point people to the one who can save. And you're here as a believer, not because someone answered all of your questions, not because their witness was so winsome that they took away any seed of unbelief, but rather you are here because a saving, sovereign God has drawn you from blindness to sight. You are here because someone in their human responsibility said, you are a sinner and let me tell you a greater news of a savior. And this frees us up to pray and to love our lots. I'm going to do something here that's real intentional. I'm going to ask you, when you walked in, you received, a, we call it the together. You might call it a bulletin. There, there's sermon notes in that. Will you open that up? Will you grab, it's a white sheet there. 
Maybe you can't find that white sheet. Just find something to write on. Will you find a pen that is in front of you? Will you get that pen out? Will you look at some type of sheet of paper? You might have come in with a sheet of paper. Just something that you can write on. You're not going to write your testimony. You're not going to bring anything down here. We're not going to hold things up. I, I just want you to have something in front of you, and I want to ask you one question. Who is your lot? Who is that friend who's dwelling in Sodom and has been taken captive by their company? Who is that coworker? Who is that father? Who is that mother? Who is that sister? Who is that brother? Who is that niece? Who is that nephew? Who is that neighbor? Maybe it's the person that's in your third period class. Maybe it's someone you just met when you moved into the dorms. Maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's your mom. Will you just in the privacy of that holy altar where you're sitting, will you just write their name down? Today is September the 9th. 2018, I want to challenge you to be a part of God's rescue mission to bring back that person that you love, that you care for, that you're just getting to know, that person whose name you just wrote down. And so my challenge is we don't fight with swords we don't fight with spheres. The armies are spiritual armies, not physical armies. So our swords, our spears, our prayer, and the word. So this year, will you daily pray for God's redemption and rescue in that person's life? And will you take one more step to say, however, you want me to be a part of this. Whether it's a call, a text message, lunch, a passing conversation at work, open up doors where I can be used by you as salt and light. It is a potent prayer that I'm placing before you this morning. One of the reasons I know this is because 23 years ago, I, I was challenged with this. And in the front of my Bible, I can see sketches of names. And if I had time, and if some of you in this room who've, who've done something similar, you could tell story after story where me, in, in my cowardice, I would have never initiated a conversation that somehow we got into because why? I believe 100% I was praying intentionally and specifically for God to do a work. I could not bring about that conversation, but he and his sovereign will brought it about. Will you pray for that person this year that God would do a powerful rescuing work in their life? Let's start today. Gracious God, we're looking at names. Maybe one name, maybe two names, maybe three names. 
And if we were to be honest, tears have been shed over the names that we're looking at. Heartache, pain. Maybe, maybe we're just getting to know the name that we've written down. Whatever stage of the relationship that we have with the person that we've written down, you love them. You love them far greater than we can even begin to imagine. You've sent your only begotten son for, for their soul, for their redemption. I pray today that you would draw them to you, that they would hear today your grace extends to wherever they've been, that your mercy, it extends to their decisions, to the pain that they've inflicted upon themselves even maybe. Maybe even this morning, there's a lot here. There's a person this morning that needs to hear that you, behind the scenes of their life, you're orchestrating their good. That you don't desire for them to, to live captive to the pleasures of sin, to the bondage of company, but you have a plan to prosper them, a hope and a future for them, that you do not want them to perish, you do not want them emotionally, physically, spiritually to be alienated from you, but you desire their flourishing, their abundant living today. I pray that that person who is, who is a lot in this sanctuary would feel your hope and feel your grace and feel your love, not only for second chances, but fourth chances, for a hundredth chances. Your grace is sufficient for all of us in this room this morning. Let us be a part of your rescue missions to share the good news of the gospel with those that we live with, come in contact with, love and care for. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Christ. We pray this in, amen.